Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. American politicians like to say that Americans are the best, the hardest workers, the most competitive. You've heard these speeches. And politicians have been saying that for a long time. But in 1971, President Richard Nixon received a memo which argued that Americans might not be quite as competitive or as dominant as we'd thought. And the president would have to pay attention if this problem had a chance of getting solved. The memo argued that the singular dominance that America had had after World War II was ending and that lots of countries had literally picked up the pieces of their cities and become major trading competitors. And the competition was only going to get tougher. The memo was by a little-known businessman named Pete Peterson, who would go on to become a billionaire. But the memo did not change politics around trade. Not then, not in the 45 years since then. By 2016, our views about the world and trade were, let's just say, on the rocks. Here's President Trump in February. The deals we have with other countries are unbelievably bad. We don't have any good deals. In fact, I'm trying to find a country where we actually have a surplus of trade as opposed to everything's a deficit. And here's Senator Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. I was on a picket line in the early 1990s against NAFTA because you didn't need a Ph.D. in economics to understand that American workers should not be forced to compete against people in Mexico making 25 cents an hour. Edward Alden argues that we should examine a potentially much more unpopular view, that global trade may be a good thing, though the way that we approach it has been kind of problematic. Edward Alden is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of the book, Failure to Adjust. Edward, thanks for being here. It's great to be with you, Kara. Thank you. So let's just talk for a second about that 1971 memo that I mentioned. Um, Why did President Nixon not listen to the warning that, hey, you know, other countries are getting more competitive. We got to do something about this. Well, he he did and he didn't. I mean, that, that memo was quite astonishingly ahead of its time. There are, you know, bits of it that you'd read and you'd say that's dated. But there's a lot of it you could read today and say the United States is facing exactly the same problems in 2017 that Pete Peterson wrote about in 1971. And there were really sort of two things he argued. One, The United States had to make sure that the rules of trade and global competition were fair ones under which we could prosper. Nixon listened to that portion of it, but there was a whole other part of the Peterson memo which said we have to do things here at home in terms of education and infrastructure and support for innovation and worker retraining programs to make sure that we as a country thrive in the more competitive global economy. And those pieces really fell by the wayside, Mm. not just under Nixon, but under other presidents as well. Why do you think successive presidents after Nixon, if you think this is true, have continued to sort of um, ignore the part of the memo that was like about, you know, increasing competitiveness in terms of education and job retraining? And like, why does that can keep getting kicked down the road? 
Well, I think there were two reasons. I think one that you mentioned in the opening was this conviction that Americans were just better than anyone else at the world in mm -hmm. terms of economic competition, that our workforce was the best, that our companies were the best. And therefore, there was really no need for the government to think systematically about a set of policies that would support American economic competitiveness. And Peterson right. in the memo warned very strongly against that. He said, look, this is a dangerous complacency and we are moving into a very new world. You know, by 1971, we were already seeing uh, Japan and Germany come back as manufacturing powerhouses. He foresaw the rise of the East Asian rim as a major uh, mm. center of global manufacturing. He said, look, we've got to wake up to this reality. So I think that was one of the reasons. Right. So if we are switching, or if we have obviously switched from an era in which, you know, textile mills can go from Fall River, Massachusetts to, you know, Alabama, and then then can go from Alabama to Juarez, Mexico, does the government owe its citizens something different in a time when that company just literally crosses a border and is no longer um, in the U.S. anymore? Well, John F. Kennedy thought that the government did owe its citizens that. Um, he was the architect of something called the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, which turned out to be a disappointment. But when he created it, he was quite passionate about it. He said, look, this will be a generous program of aid to workers who lose their jobs because of import competition. In fact, assistance to the communities that get hard hit. Because, of course, when the textile mill disappears, that affects, you know, the restaurant and the bowling alley and the local drugstore right. and all of the other uh, enterprises in the town. He said, look, we, we have to help these places. And he gave several fairly passionate speeches about it, saying, look, liberal trade is a policy that is in the interests of the United States. We're going to benefit economically. It's important for our diplomacy. It's important for our security. But we can't pursue a policy that we believe is in the national interest and then let a, a smaller subset of our population pay all the price. We actually need to help them through this transition. Mm -hmm. And yet the United States never did that. So yes, I think the government did owe those communities that, and so did JFK. We are not the only country that has experienced this, of course. Um, and you've talked about other countries spending hugely um, uh, more than we do when it comes to retraining. And I don't mean education. I don't mean like eighth grade education or 10th grade. I mean like you've lost your job. It's gone somewhere else, let's say, or it's just been phased out. There is no such job anymore. Um, and retraining people. Can you talk about um, what countries and like what you see in terms of other places and, and potential models for the U.S.? Yeah, um, great question. I just uh, let, me, let me say that there are two differences between the United States and most of the other advanced economies. And the first one is that the speed of our entry into the global economy was pretty dramatic. I mean, over the course of my lifetime, I was born in the early 1960s, you know, we've gone uh, from sort of 10% of our economy being wrapped up in trade to more than a third of our economy being wrapped up in trade. That was a really rapid transition. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, the dislocations here in the United States were bigger than they were in Europe, where, uh, you know, you look at Britain and France and Germany, they've long been bigger trading economies mm -hmm. than the United States. So I think that's the first point, that I think the shock here was somewhat larger. But the second point is the one you 
make, which is that in terms of public policy, we do a lot less. I mean, you can get into the particulars of the programs, what the Germans do in terms of their apprentice programs and in terms of wage insurance that tops up worker salaries if they if they lose hours at their job. You can look at Denmark and the, and the dramatic interventions that they do uh, when people there lose work. If you just look at it in terms of spending, the United States spends 0.1% of its GDP on these what are called active labor market programs. The average in Europe is half a percent of GDP, five times as much. In Denmark, it's 2% of GDP, 20 times as much. There is a much larger commitment in all of the other advanced economies to trying to help the workforce make this transition. We've just never gotten into that game seriously in the United States. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Edward Alden, the author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. Um, When you think about what we have to do to have a workforce with sort of the right skills for the economy as you see it now, as you see it going forward, uh, what should we be doing differently? What should we be doing, period? Like, what do you see? I think the key challenge is to recognize that the education and skills requirements for the good jobs of the present and future are just significantly higher than they were in the past. I mean, if you think about the transition from agriculture to manufacturing, which was a big transition in the United States. You go back to right. 1900 and, right. you know, 40 plus percent of our population was in agriculture. Right. And, you know, by 1960, a high percentage of it had moved into manufacturing. That was in many ways, in skill terms, not that big a leap. You know, you took, you know, strong young men off the farm who knew how to tinker with machinery and you put them in factories where they needed to be strong and know how to tinker with machinery. So Mm -hmm. they kind of had that set Mm -hmm. of skills. As you move from a manufacturing economy to a high-tech economy, a services economy – the the reskilling portion is much harder and you hear a lot of conversations about the need for lifelong learning and making it possible for people throughout their careers to move to the next level of education or training that they need and we're not really structured to do that for the most part. We sort of see education as a one and done. You go through high school or right. community college, right. university, and then you're finished and you're set for the rest of your career. With the pace of technological change today, I don't think that's realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons the United States did so well economically in the 20th century is we educated more of our young people up through high school sooner than any of the other major economies. If you look now, We've kind of stayed where we are in terms of education and college completion. A lot of other countries are are leapfrogging, Mm. and and we've got to catch up again. Now, I just want to take the other side of what we've been talking about, which is that uh, we have seen a lot of foreign companies come here to the U.S. and open up uh, manufacturing plants. Um, I think about like Volvo, BMW. If we are in the beginnings of, I don't know, either a trade war or trade deals just in general sort of we're clamping down or we don't really want to be involved in them, is it possible that we're kind of clamping down just at the moment when they're about to help us? Like other companies, other countries, you know, are trying to come in and say, we, hey, we, we'd like to put a manufacturing plan in Ohio. That is that is a great question. And, you know, one of the ironies of these things, if you look if you look at the political mood on trade, it's been souring for decades. 
and it finally falls over the cliff just when the United States has concluded the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which in a lot of ways was the best trade deal the United States had ever written. It learned a lot from some of the previous failures, and yet that was the deal that gets thrown out of the window when the public mood finally moves hard against trade. And I think the foreign investment piece is another one that we should be really worried about. You know, if you look at why trade relations with Japan went from very sour in the 1980s to much sweeter in the 1990s, it was because the Japanese began investing in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, Honda opened their plant in Marysville, Ohio in 1986, and Toyota, Nissan, and others followed. And suddenly the Japanese were here in the United States investing, creating jobs. The Germans, as you point out, have done it with uh, BMW and Volkswagen. The Mexicans are doing it uh, more and more in the United States. And the Chinese have figured this out too. They're investing much more heavily in the United States. So Hmm. yes, I worry about exactly what you suggest, that we're going to shut the door exactly at a time when a lot of companies are eager to come in. If you... Uh, could have a big stage and talk to the American public, um, you know, individual people, what is the thing that you would tell them that maybe they don't know about trade? You know, maybe as a myth, maybe as a false idea that you'd want to say, hey, hey, I just want you to know this is actually the reality. Okay. So I'm, I'm going I'm to say two things in response to this. Sure. We heard our politicians say again and again and again over the course of decades that trade was a great thing that would lift all boats and we would all be wealthier because of it. And I think they never took seriously what they understood, which is that there are real distributional consequences. There are going to be some real winners from trade and there are going to be some losers. And we needed to recognize that at the outset. And I think that there was an effort to paint the gains Mm. far more broadly than was actually the reality. So I think... Trade was oversold, and Mm. and I would tell people you need to understand the ways in which trade was oversold. On the other side, I would say do not underestimate the ways in which trade has improved your lives. So if you look at the average family and what they spend on clothing, go back to 1970, the average household spent 7% of its family budget on clothing. A lot of stuff was made in the United States, but they paid a lot for it. Today, the average family spends 3% of its budget on clothing. Mm. You go to, you know, any mall in the country and clothing is very cheap. It's all made elsewhere, but it's good quality and it's inexpensive. And you can go across a whole series of products. You know, the Apple iPhone would not exist without the global supply chain that made it possible. It's got components in it from 30 different countries. Wow. So, you know, if we love cheap clothing and we love our iPhones, <laughs> then we love international trade. Hmm. And so I think it's important neither to you know, overstate the benefits of trade, but equally important not to underestimate how much better a lot of our lives are because of what trade has brought us. It's interesting what you say about uh, clothing being, well, people are spending less than half of what they used to on clothing like 40, 50 years ago, which is great. It is literally great for everybody except the person who lost their job making clothing. That person, they have 0% of their income, presumably. I mean, they may have found another job. But you know what I mean? Like that person was really hurt. Everybody else gets to spend more of their income on whatever else. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at the absolute gains in terms of consumer savings, if you're going to do a pure utilitarian thing, it would be clear that the gains to the mass of Americans far outweigh the cost for uh-huh. those selected workers. Uh-huh. But getting back to Kennedy's point, 
you can't allow a small subset of the population right. to pay the whole price for gains that everyone right, else is realizing. Right, right, right. And we never took that problem seriously. We never went at, did what we needed to do to help those people make the transition. Edward Alden is author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. He's also a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Edward, thank you so much. This is great. Great to be with you, Kara. Thank you. One additional interesting tidbit from my conversation with Edward Alden. Before globalization and fair trade really took hold, government regulation in an area like apparel was absolute in a way that is almost inconceivable today. You go back to the 70s and 60s, every single category down to, you know, men's underwear of a certain fabric was quota limited, broken down by every single country that sold it to us, by every different kind of fabric, by different kind of specifications. There were thousands of quota categories. The entire textile and apparel industry was a managed trade sector. It was not free trade at all. We've got more about how so many Americans soured on trade and why the Trans-Pacific Partnership might be, as Alden argued, one of the best trade deals we ever signed. That's all at innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.